0: weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show, Talk Radio 77 WABC.
1: Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. We do this Sunday and every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. And today, one of the hottest stars on Broadway, straight from the stage of Funny Girl, tapping his way into your heart, Jared Grimes. He's going to be our guest along with Melissa Rivers. So, you be there, too. Right now, starting at 2 o'clock.
0: The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats.
1: All right, everyone. A week from Monday is Memorial Day. Now, think. What does that mean? It means hot dogs. And it's the big you know, (laughs) our crew guests. It's time to grill hot dogs. It's the rights of summer. So, a couple of little secrets. Our producer, who grew up in New Jersey, told us that her father, who doesn't live anywhere near Newark, would go around this time of year to Newark, New Jersey, to 144 Avon Avenue, and there's a place called Best Provisions Company, and her dad would go and buy what he says are the most incredible hot dogs, better than anything they've ever had. And that reminded me that my pal, one of the great foodies, Arthur Schwartz, right? The food maven. He told me, too, years ago, about best provisions. They're open Monday till Friday, 6 a.m. to 4 p.m., Saturdays till 1. And if you're going anywhere near Newark Airport, and you're not going exciting places, go to a hot dog place. All you have to do, oh, yeah, you know, I couldn't find it when I tried to go. If you put it in your GPS, the place is 10 minutes from Newark Airport. However, it's in an urban area, and it's hard to find. So I'm not so good at directions. I'm a lefty, and I'm telling you, it screws up your whole head when it comes to directions. But The GPS got me there. The place is in a brick factory building by a loading gate. That's why you'd miss it. And there's parking. The family has been in the hot dog deli business since 1938. And I'm always amazed by how many friends in New Jersey never heard of it. It's the factory store, and this is the only place you can get best natural casing hot dogs. They do sell their skinless hot dogs, grocery stores. They're good. But you want the ones with the natural casing. And of course, five pound packages, twenty six seventy-five, cash only. And when we were there we spoke to Eddie at the store, and he said many of the famous New Jersey Italian hot dog stands use their natural casing hot dog and have for years. The factory store also sells roast beef, corned beef, pastrami, delicious beef bologna, and knockwurst. Everything they make right there. I mean, you believe me. You go to your regular places. That isn't the story. So if you can go to the factory, view it as an adventure. You can get their their skinless beef hot dogs, too, and shop there. Or go to Shop and Stop, ShopRite, Key Foods, Food Time, Acme, and you can get any of those too. So, you know, I never used to like hot dogs. I think maybe it's the craziness of the times, but what's satisfying, more satisfying, right off the grill, a plump, fantastic hot dog with natural casing. You know, when you bite into it and you hear that snap, that's a hot dog. That's a really good hot dog. And if you want a really good hot dog, you want a Best Provision Company hot dog. So enjoy every bite. We've got a lot of show coming up. I'm Joan Hamburg.
0: Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
1: Well, people are always asking us what to do, where to go, what should they do in theater. And we love theater, and we celebrate it. I always love Funny Girl, and I love it still. And every time you see a show, even if you've seen it before, it's a brand-new experience. So that's how you have to come to it. Just let it take over. And that's what happened when I went to see Funny Girl. And you're going to love it. And one of the great scenes is a tap-dancing scene, and Jared Grimes, who plays Eddie Ryan in Funny Girl, brings the house down. Now, I've seen Jared work before, but I'm telling you, there was something magical about that. So, Jared, congratulations on everything. So happy to have you with us today. And I'm Thank sure, you. Glad to be here. You know, eight shows is a lot, but it's worth every exhaustion moment.
2: <laughs> for sure
1: so let's start really at the beginning you were just a kid when your mother had the good sense to teach you how to tap right three years old
2: yeah three years old she was always working on dance routines uh downstairs and i would wake up early in the morning and i would see her and her friends down there working on those routines and i just slowly but surely you know i started to pick up some of the steps i wanted to dance with them and And I wanted to be like my mom, so tap wasn't even her 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 first love. It was actually the the one she feared the most out of all the genres. But for some reason, I latched on to that one.
1: Well, I think that, and that's a great kid thing because not only is it fun to do, but it makes noise. And
2: oh my gosh, it makes noise and it's, it's it's loud and you know you can you can bang and. All day long. As soon as you wake up, even when you're asleep, you can still tap dance. <laughs> now, was, I was your... I for that type of energetic, you know...
1: Right, of... and Jared, was your mom a professional dancer?
2: Um, yeah, she was, on and off. Um, she had a dance company in uh, Jamaica, Queens, called Sunshine Dance Company, and they used to perform and, and tour around the New York area for the most part. Um, and that's pretty much, you know, the extent of her, her professional career was you know, teaching. bootstrapping her own dance program and teaching and teaching workshops around and preparing young um black kids for um, the industry. Um, and that's what her passion was. And she's a school teacher, too. So her passion was more about teaching dance right. and teaching academics.
1: And then when the family moved to North Carolina, it's funny because you moved. I knew High Point because I knew people in the furniture business. And that was a big hey. deal there.
2: Mm hmm. Central so, Market, High Point. I don't know why my parents picked High Point, but um, I think at the time. I was six years old. I think their their mode of thinking was it was this new upstart town that had like a lot of potential, which today High Point is huge. Right. Um, but when we moved there, um, like in the in the in the early nineties, um, it was it was smaller. I mean, I I remember it was all forest. It was all woods. There were really not too many businesses. The city was pretty small. And then you know I look up now and it's almost the same size and has the same popularity and draw as Charlotte uh, or Raleigh, North Carolina. So it's definitely gotten bigger and my parents were right. Um, and the dance scene was really um, big there too in terms of dance schools. There were a lot of dance schools and I think that's what attracted my parents to that area because they knew I could kind of continue dancing and growing in, um, in the arts.
1: Well, and you did. You became part of a company. You started touring. But how did you get like you toured at one point with Mariah Carey. How does something like that happen when you're so young?
2: <laughs> oh man I was uh, I was in college I was a senior in college and um, yeah I just went. I had a math class coming up and, and uh, you know my day my agent called me and they were like, hey Mariah Carey's doing a, um, an audition for her uh, for her press tour uh, in the first leg of her Emancipation and Mimi tour and they were like, uh, do you have time to run over there real quick and I'm in between classes. I'm like, man, I, should, I, you know, should I skip math today or should I should I, go to the, should I go to this audition? You know, usually when you go to auditions like that, there might be like 100, 200, you know, dancers buying for, you know, maybe five slots. Of course. In this particular case, there were maybe a little bit under 100 and they were all buying, we were all buying for one slot because uh, she had already hired dancers from LA. Um, so they were in New York and they were looking for one more dance. And I was like, wow. So, I mean, you know, the odds of this is, kind of, you know, low, but the choreographer that was um, on the project, he was the choreographer, uh, Marty Kudelka, who's Justin Timberlake's go-to choreographer. He was somebody that I just at least wanted to learn from. So I was like, you know, at the at, at the worst, you know, I could go to the audition and at least have a free class from this uh, choreographer just to get the experience. And um, I ended up, you know, I ended up getting the job and we started rehearsals literally right after the audition. So I couldn't even make it to math class, so I called my teacher and I told I told them why. And they were like, oh, yeah, by all means, yeah, that's, you know, at this point in time, that's that's way better than these complex equations. So, uh, <laughs> yes, so. Um, And so I found myself on tour with, with, with one of the legends in pop music.
1: Without question, I'm talking to Jared Grinds, and Jared does it all. He sings, he dances, he acts. He's a great choreographer. He's one of the stars of Funny Girl. And if you've just joined us, we were talking about how – it was almost a fluke. He auditioned for Mariah Carey, and is you know anything about theater and showbiz, everyone wants to do that if they dance or sing. And yet, you got it. So, what happened when you came back after that tour?
2: Uh, you know what? I just had a new had a new um, a new perspective and outlook on you know what the business was. Um, being a backup dancer, um, that was my first. That was my first backup dancing job, actually. Uh, so I was just like, wow, like, you know, I got to see how Mariah Carey operated in rehearsals. I got to see how, you know, the band operated on tour and how her backup singers operated on tour. And that was like my really, really, that was my first um, close-up glimpse to show business in terms of on a professional level. Um, and I was just, I remember thinking, man, if I could, you know, if I could be the leader of my own universe in that right, kind of like, you know, Mariah Carey, maybe more in a Gregory Hines type of way or in a Sammy Davis Jr. kind of way, you know, that would be, that would be awesome because I just, the rush that I got from just being on stage and I wasn't even the the focal point, you know, I was just like, oh man, that's the, that's the kind of rush that I live for. And it's a different type of rush. Like, you know, I've, I've been performing my entire life, but, you know, to be on, you know, MTV and perform on BET and, uh, you know, to perform on Good Morning America and stuff like that, that was a different type of commercial aesthetic than what I was used to. You know, everything else is, you know, up until that point, was a little bit, or you know, regional theater or, you know, uh, you know, small kind of commercials, you know, the Definitely. building blocks to becoming, you know, building your career. And that was kind of like the pinnacle at that point. My life, I was just like, oh man, I, I want this. Like I want stuff like this. I want, I want to be able to reach, the masses and the way that Mariah Carey reached the masses um, when we were on tour. And, you know, although it's Mariah Carey, that's a, that's a high bar to, to, to jump to so soon, you know, in my career, but I just, I instantly jumped. never forgot what that felt like and I wanted it. So I just kind of worked hard towards, you know, that standard um you know of, of entertainment in my own way. And um, that's when doors started opening. And I started back up dancing for more, for more artists after that. Um, I think I, right after that, I was, dancing with Buster Rhymes, salt and Pepper, uh, The Artist Common. Um, you know, everything kind of broke open for me um, in terms of backup dancing, and I got to see how all these artists operated, and I was just like, yeah, like, I get it. I understand. From seeing them, you know, from being backstage with Usher and, you know, being in a room with Justin Timberlake and having a conversation yeah, with, you know, guys like John Legend and, you know, Justin oh gosh, it's big you know, and Usher time. to a certain degree, I was just like, man, I was like, I want to be like, I want to be like them, you know, for my, my generation. But in a famous junior, Fred there, you know, Gregory Hines kind of way. So I just, I really, those moments were important for me uh, early on because I, I felt like I was supposed to be in that room with those guys.
1: And it happened. I'm talking to Jared yeah.
2: Grimes who
1: <laughs> plays Eddie Ryan in Funny Girl. And we're going to let you hear much more because here you you get a big break. You go on tour. You start meeting the major players. So at what point, you know, obviously it's a tough business to make a living in. And I know you did a lot of work. You were tapping away in the subways in New York. Was that after the tour? When did that part start happening?
2: Uh, Before I got to college. So um, I was, I was still in high school uh, in the the late, we're not the late, like, like the late 90s. I would say like 99, maybe, 98. And, um, and uh, I would come back and forth, you know, from North Carolina to New York to just study, take classes with uh, the choreographer of my tap moment and uh girl, the Cassell. I would drive back and forth to take classes with teachers like her. She was one of my first mentors. Mm. And I made friends from doing that. And the friends that I, that I made, they just happened to, to you know, come in the subways. Um, just for, you know, just for money and just for just the, the sheer love of the class and just the closeness that it brings you to, you know, a New York audience. Um, and so, you know, when I was in high school, I used to drive up, take classes and then in between classes and on downtime, I used to go with the, go with the guys and go under the subway and, 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 and perform. Um, our, our favorite, yeah, I would tap. I mean, they would have their buckets and they would be bucket drumming and I would pull out a board and me and you know the likes of Dewey Fleming and uh, another great tap dancer, um, tap dancer friends of ours. We go out there and we perform for hours on end just because we just we enjoyed it and we were pushing the craft and we were growing, we were evolving in the art form. And then when I got here, college, you know, throughout the 2000s, I think um, I, I performed all the way from you know 2001 all the way to like maybe 2003. Wow. And you made um, money in the subways. Yeah, maybe. I mean that wasn't even the main. Oh, the main goal is to to really just uh push yourself exactly. i mean there's something about you know performing in a subway or performing on a sidewalk for New York that is, it's an experience you know that relates to no other in my entire life um, it's just so raw it's so it's to render completely to you know the the energy of New York City the people right at you unlike being on the stage because they're a little bit further away from you but they're like they form a circle right around you and they just they connect to you in a different way. And um, it was the best training ground for me to prepare for the stage, because if you're used to trying to catch someone's attention in New York city with a pair of class shoes, as they're walking by typically late for an appointment already. And if you can get that person to stop and take you in a little bit, then, you know, that's an amazing, you know, <laughs> that's an amazing accomplishment. No, without York, question. Most people don't have time for you. So that's what that was all about. The stamina. It was the, It was the passion. It was the, it was the, the urge to really um, really get people to want to connect with you, relate with you, uh, love with you. Um, All the things that human beings can can be with one another, that's the most positive aspects about them. If you could get somebody to, to share that with you in that moment that you're on that board, you know, on the sidewalk or in the subway, that's, that's, that's what it was all about. Sometimes you close your eyes and you open them and there's, you know, over a hundred people there. And sometimes you close your eyes and open them and there's just one, you know, little girl standing there, you but know, it's dancing, okay. dancing with you. And that's what it's all about, you know. But you also
1: had this incredible ambition and burning. And even when there were moments of disappointment, you, you didn't give up. And there, you know, I have actors in the family and people in that industry and so many of their friends would say, if I don't get it by the time I'm 30 or 35, I'm done. You know, how much longer can I do this? But you can't really think like that, right? Because no. especially in your area, too, where there are so many dancers and so many people who want what you want.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's true. Is uh, I mean, you know, everybody has a plan B and a plan C for certain things like that. Um, I had always told myself that, um, you know, once I really matured in the art form, and there's no way you can ever fully mature in in, in, in music. Your music is infinite. Um, but I think when I really started to to gain my bearings and understand just what type of instrument I was working with,
3: uh-huh.
2: I think that's when a lot of things changed for me. I told myself, I was like, look, you know, if I don't achieve the the goals that I'm supposed that I that I want to achieve then that really doesn't matter. I think first and foremost, what I really made my mission statement as I started to gain my bearings in the, in the art form and all the things that I was passionate about. is I was like, you know, it should be about something bigger. It should be about giving, you know, it shouldn't be about what I want. It should be about, you know, giving, giving people the history of uh, a lot of black performers that came before me that sacrificed a lot in order for me to even have conversations like this right now who paved the way for me to even be, you know, nominated or to be on a Broadway stage or to even dance with Mariah Carey. I was like, it should be about them. I want to give people a piece of their legacy, of their, of their spirit, of, of their fight, their struggle. And I completely removed myself from the equation at that point. And, uh, you know, I made it about giving, you know, giving the history, giving the, the knowledge, giving, you know, life to those performers who a lot of people um, may not know about and a lot of history mm-hmm. books did not, you know, write about. Um, it was all about giving, and I, I made that my mission statement. And um, it's funny because as soon as I changed my mindset to that, that's when a lot more doors started, started opening. to open up. And I was just like, wow! If I if I would have you know, if I would have known that a little bit earlier. Uh, not that it's some trick to getting doors open, but you know, you know, I just I made it about something bigger than you know how hard I work, or or bigger than being the best you know triple threat performer ever you know, bigger than, you know, trying to be like my idols. I, I just made it about, you know, preserving the legacy. Um, and, uh, you know, that's when, you know, the door started opening up for me. And that's when, you know, there was no time mark on anything that I did. You know, I could, I was satisfied if I just made my mission statement back till the day I was no more. You know, there, there was no time scale at that point. I, I was just, I was content and I was happy. With, you were going to uh, do it. With really making things about them.
1: But so where did Funny Girl come in? Now you you've been working now, and you know people know you, and you're doing more and more. But did you read about it, hear about it? Did your agent call you and say, "Hey, there's a good role in this for you"? Um,
2: at the time I was uh, I was filming uh, Manifest on Netflix, uh-huh. uh, we're in our fourth season, so uh, every everything was kind of focused in on on that job um, at hand. And, um, you, know, I, you know, I get auditions and, and self-tapes and stuff like that, you know, intermittently throughout the weeks and stuff like that. And, um, you know, my agents had shown me, you know, Funny Girl. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, I know the, you know, I know the movie to a certain extent. I know the characters. I know the story. And, you know, I, you know, usually when something comes across my, my desk, since I've been doing so much choreography, I was like, oh, is this, you know, for choreography or... Um, or is it... They I, were like, I, I, no, it's... <laughs> they were like, it's for... Um, an actor. It's for an actor that plays a choreographer in the show. And that's when I was like, oh, come on. And I was like, that's, that's actually, you know, even more perfect. Because um, I love to, you know, be that dual threat type of performer, which, uh, you know, I'm working behind the table on some projects, choreographing or, you know, dabbling in directing and then also performing. Like, I always want to be, be that person that's the jack of all trades when it comes to... When, everything behind the table and in front of the table or behind the camera and in front of the camera. And um, I was like, okay, Eddie Ryan. I was like, okay, cool. I was like, I'm pretty sure in the, the version that I remember Eddie Ryan was not black. And they were like, yeah, they're, they're open to different ethnicities. For and I was like, oh man, this could be a great opportunity for, you know, the mission statement that I just spoke about previously. And I was like, this, you know, early 1800s, a guy that's playing a that's a, a best friend and ride or die to a a young Jewish uh, rising star, I was like, this is, this is an amazing story, and there's a lot of layers that I could bring to this character that, you know, you know, may have never been done before. Right, and, and, um, and they and made the character. comedy.
1: The character became more important. Harvey Fierstein, you know, rewrote it and put a lot into it. So there was yeah, a juicy part. Yeah, he told part. me I was a real
2: person. Yeah, yeah, he told me I was a real person. That's when, that's when my heart... We opened up and I realized that, you know, we were all on the same page in terms of, you know, exactly what Eddie would mean to the universe of, of our version of Funny Girl. And, uh, you know, sadly, I think in the original, um, the part was a smaller part. Um, and this time, you know, we we were in the room, trying things, and I was talking about all the things, that I was just talking about my mission statement and, you know, immersing myself in Bill Robinson and, John Bubbles and Bill Bailey and baby Lawrence and the Nicholas brothers and you know all those oh, great performers damn. that i watched growing up. And I was, you know, I was crafting Eddie, you know, spirit of those guys. And, you know, every day was, you know, was a challenge in terms of how to bring that to the story without compromising the, you know, the arc of the entire story. And, um, you know, one day when I really felt good about some of the choices that I made, Harvey pulled me to the side and he was like, that's it. He was like, Eddie is a real person. And as soon as he said that, you know, you know, they started adding some more lines and stuff like that and arcing him out just a little bit more in the second half and in the, the first half, actually. And um, we found, you know, our version of Eddie, the, the African-American Eddie. Um, I'm super proud of the way I pay homage on stage every night to, like I said, all those who paved the way.
1: Now, it's exciting. Was your family there for opening
2: night? They were not. Uh, my mom has come my parents aren't really big on opening nights. They like to come when, you know, when it's you know when established. The show established well oiled and everything. Even though by the time you get to an opening night it is, but you know, my parents they always sneak in and they kinda of surprise me and they pull that, Hey, I'm in I'm in town, let me come see the show and I'm like, oh, for sure. So my mom came over Mother's Day and she saw the original. Yeah. And she was just super excited. She had no idea that, you know, the Eddie character would would kind of um Be so you know, big. <laughs> Or hit audiences in the in, in the way that um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to to do with our version of the show and she thought it was it was really you know, respectful and dignified and she it made her proud. Um, and uh, you know, on Mother's Day that was one of the, the biggest gifts I could great. give her. It
1: sounds great. And when she saw her kid, you do that solo tap routine, she thought it was really worth pushing that three year old to learn to dance.
2: <laughs> Oh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. This is joy. She sees that smile. She's seen that smile since day one. So she knows. She knows when. um you got knows When I get in the time machine and I go back and I just, you know, uh, I, I just bask in the joy of, of all those performers that came before me.
1: Well, you do a great job. We love seeing you and the whole cast. Funny girl, and take yourself over. Go get a ticket. It's gonna make you feel happy. We have a crazy world. And it's just amazing to be able to sit in the theater and let magic occur and take your mind off all the bad things and just celebrate all the good things. Congratulations, Jared. I look forward to your continued success, and we'll talk again.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me today.
1: Anytime. I'm Joan Hamburg with Jared Grimes as Eddie Ryan in Funny Girl and much more ahead here on WABC.
2: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and A member FDIC.
3: Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr.
0: provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno call seven. 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
1: Welcome, one and all, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I haven't talked to Melissa Rivers, Joan's daughter, in a long time. And then, of course... Her new book came out, Lies My Mother Told Me, Tall Tales from a Short Woman. And I got the biggest kick out of it. I heard Joan in her daughter's voice. Melissa, your mom would have loved this book and been so proud of you. Enjoyed every minute of it. And what a perfect time. Because we all thought Joan Rivers right at the Oscars when... That little incident happened with the slap that people are still talking about.
3: Absolutely. You know, my running joke has been she would have said, thank you for the new house. (laughs) Because there's so much material.
1: (laughs) No, absolutely. And I'm sure that when that happened, your phone started ringing like crazy. What would Joan Rivers have done?
3: Oh, it's been it's been nonstop. She, She would have been horrified. I mean, you knew her well enough to know that would have absolutely just just she would have been so upset.
1: Well, you know, as much as your mother was in someone's face, if she had to be, she never really, as far as I knew, ever exhibited any kind of really bad behavior. I can't imagine her ever even thinking of anything like that.
3: Oh, no. Not never, but I do think it would be frightening to her, as it is, I think, to a lot of comedians that it's now almost open season.
1: Dangerous, right. Right, Very. it's dangerous. By the way, if you've just joined me, I'm talking to Melissa Rivers, and Melissa is herself an award-winning personality on TV. She's a producer. She's written best-selling books. And the newest lies my mother told me tall tales from a short woman is really funny and it's it's joan and it's this mother daughter joined at the hip and it's funny because even growing up the three of you your dad your mom and you you were a really tight unit and whatever your mother did traveling all the time on the road You, I always got the feeling. Did you ever feel like you were the deserted kid or no? Oh, God, no.
3: You know, there were points, you know, where my parents were the parents that made it to every game. And when you're a teenager, you're like, oh, please stop already. Right. Yeah, we were there. I never felt that way at all. Even as an adult, I was like, God, too much. Like, you know, leave me alone.
1: <laughs> but she actually moved in with you at a time, I remember.
3: Yeah, she was but living with uh, Cooper and me probably three days a week, sometimes four, when we were doing Fashion Police and the reality show and all, all that all at once. So she, she was very much in the house.
1: Well, and your mom, and it, it's actually in the book, But she had this tradition that you included called Grandma Week. She was obsessed with your child. And that was so, everyone who knew her was like, we can't believe that's Joan Rivers. She worshipped that little boy, now a big boy. Yeah, he's 21. I know, hard to believe.
3: Cooper is 21 and a junior at Berkeley.
1: Hmm. And does he want to go into the family entertainment world? No, he's much more interested in new media
3: mm-hmm. and is a media studies major. So he he's really into sort of the next wave uh, of of all of that. He has you know no desire to be in front of the camera. And he's much more interested in in this whole sort of wild west of the new world of entertainment.
1: Right. And it is it's a new language all over again.
3: Yes. So that's where his head is at.
1: Yeah, but that, but it's okay. And he and your mom had this incredible relationship. I loved (laughs) Melissa. It was a river's Melissa line when your mom took Cooper on these trips. And when she told him on one of their adventures that they had to leave the Vatican and instead now go to the seat of Judaism. And when the kid, looked at her and said, Jerusalem, grandma. And your mother said, no, sweetheart, Bloomingdale's. It was just so perfect, (laughs) right? That that was a perfect Joan Rivers line.
3: Yeah, I had so much fun writing the book. And people keep, and and, and you knew my mom, so you understood the humor in it. People keep saying, did she really say and do these things? And I'm like, no, this was... this." This, this this is a very hyper-realistic, no, she never told me I had a secret brother who was perfect named Melvin. You know, <laughs> she really did tell, know the story of the real Thanksgiving. She didn't tell me that the pilgrims were bad guests because they moved the place cards. You know, <laughs> so, you know, people keep saying, well, what's true in it? I'm like, well, we had Thanksgiving. There was Grandma Week. She did like going to theater, but no, she did not meet the Pope at, at on Broadway.
1: <laughs> she would have in her head, because she had a lot to say. 100%. 100%. 100%.
3: This, in her head, all of this could have happened.
1: No, which is funny. But I get the feeling she didn't really push you, right? I mean, you made a lot of choices that were your choices. It wasn't like her... S- sort of saying you got to do this, you got to do that.
3: You know, I think every parent in their own way pushes their child and you just have to sort of know your audience. And mm-hmm. her whole thing was I would eventually come around to what she wanted me to do. And believe me when I didn't, I I would hear about it. But she, you know, just like I know how to handle my son, she knew how to handle me. And and push me in the direction she thought was best. But every right. every parent knows how to how to you know, I how to manipulate their child. No, you know, and I know with Cooper you, what I know, I know with Cooper what I need to how say. Deal, to deal. I
1: know. Yeah,
3: yeah. You know, we just had a conversation the other day where he was making sort of this very declarative statement about something about his future. And I'm like, okay, I mean, all I can tell you is from my experience, this is what I did and this is how it worked out for me. And you can make your own decisions and I can only tell you what I went through and from my point of view, how I got there. And, you know, two days later, he's like, you know, I think you're right. I'm like, yeah. So with him, I know I always have to be like, look, this is this was my experience.
1: Right. And your mom taught you no matter what, that funny is funny and you have to laugh even during tragic moments to get through. And you do that too with your own. I mean, the loss of your mom was not only devastating to you, but to your son, he had this incredible relationship with his grandmother.
3: 100%. And I had to, you know, get him through it, which I think in hindsight helped me get through it Mm -hmm. because I couldn't fall apart. I had this little person to take care of. So, you know, it, 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 you know, my, my parents always taught me really about focus on the important part of it and you'll get through it. You don't, no, you know, in our family, we were we were like, okay, you're allowed your moment. Now get up and put one foot in front of the other. And what I found so interesting is, you know, I've always been very, very strong. And so many of my mom's friends would say, like, we're shocked. And I wanted to be like, why? Why are you shocked that I'm coping?
1: Right, that and you're I, strong I, I, and I, you're like living your life.
3: And I. I found that fascinating.
1: Well, why do you think that was? For the life of me, I don't
3: know. Because those, and and these were some of the people who were very close to our family. And I think, I don't know, maybe they were channeling or projecting their own emotions but I remember sitting, believe it or not, at the first Thanksgiving after my mother passed and them saying, well, we're so impressed that you didn't fall apart. And we all assumed we were going to be picking you up off the floor. And I literally was like, do, do you know where I come from? Right. You know, you've known me almost my whole life. I'm, I'm shocked that you would think that. And uh, to this day, I can't get my head around that. But you also say, okay, you know, maybe they're projecting, you know, and take it as they're proud of how I'm handling it.
1: You know, sometimes when there's an only child, you know, people who are looking in can't quite accept the fact that, yeah, that child is independent. That child has a life despite her closeness to her uh, family, her mother and her father. And you've always been your own person and done what you wanted. But a lot of people just don't get that. Just like, you know, I remember, Melissa, the first time I went to your mother's house. I, I, I still remember feeling shocked because, you know, the Joan Rivers that you see on the stage or at a club or stand up, and always funny and right there and cutting this house was this gracious gorgeous genteel you know beautiful china and everything you you didn't realize it. Joan Rivers had a lot of faces and one of them was right
3: 100% 100% and just to go back for a sec I and mean, it just kind of dawned on me in a sort of strange way I think one of the reasons people that was so shocking to me that people really thought that I wanted to turn around and say do you know my family do you right. think you know the, the worst thing I could do in my mother's memory was not cope and fall apart that would be so disrespectful right. of how that's I was that's perfect raised. way
1: mm-hmm no, you you, know, you are your mother's daughter, and she would expect nothing less than picking yeah. up those reins and being strong and giving that gift to your own child. Exactly, exactly. No, because both of you went through a lot. And also, I mean, you know, your mom hung out with the royals, too. A lot of people yes. forget that, right? That.
3: So, someone just asked me my opinion on all that. And I'm like, everyone forgets that families have fights. Theirs is just being, you know, yes, they're held to a different, you know, expectation mm-hmm. in decorum. But everyone forgets families have fights. Of and they're course. a family.
1: No, I, they are a family that's gone way back and they understand how important it is to hold itself together. And I'm sure that when your dad passed away, that was a horrendous thing. And I'm sure that as this child who was strong, but very sensitive, you felt a lot of anger and rage too, because you didn't know what
3: else, right? Yeah, but that's very typical when when someone loses someone to suicide. There's a lot of, there's a lot of a lot. There's a lot of, you know, first you go through the guilt, then you go through the rage, then you go through the what we use, what I call the if onlys and beat yourself up. And then you go back to, you know, being pissed off again. And then you 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 hopefully make some peace with it. And as I always say to people, I loved my father. I respected my father. Do I think what he did was really, really, really shitty? Yeah, but it doesn't mean I loved him any less.
1: Right. No, no. And your father was a brilliant, brilliant guy. Yeah. And and depression. No one really, unless you go through it or live through it with a family member, understand the complexity of it and the depths of it, and what it does.
3: but also back in 87 people didn't talk about it. Uh-huh. It was a no. va- it was a vastly different landscape than it is now.
1: But you got through it and your of mom course. got through it. And you know again you know, and what
3: were the choices? The choice was no. to get through it.
1: But you remember all the good things and that's what's of important. Course. You of course. take the good And you leave out the bad.
3: And you know, and that's a lot with with my parenting. And I think that's everybody. You try and take the good from your childhood and what you feel your parents did right, and you try and jettison the bad.
1: But you know, Melissa, your mother always thought that you were a really great parent. And she always and she talked about it. And I always have the feeling that she was a great parent, too. But it's just a different thing. She looked at your style of parenting with such admiration.
3: Well, she used to always say to me, you're such a better parent than I was. And I would always be like, I don't think that's a thought you should be sharing with me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one should let it in, her inside voice stay inside.
1: You know what I mean? But she couldn't. She not, couldn't do that. Like,
3: I I understand the compliment, but you got to understand kind of what you're saying to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? That always used to make me laugh. I'm like, really? Are you trying to send me back into therapy?
0: Oh,
1: that's so funny. Yeah, but it it was with pride. You know, you should know, see my I, kid. What? But you yeah,
3: again. I don't think we should be sh- saying, well, wow, I there were times I was a
1: really shitty parent. <laughs> <laughs> that? Oh, my gosh. That was really funny. And when I think of all the holidays and you do that, too, that your mom had where if someone was alone, even if it wasn't her best friend, but it was it would hurt her. You know, and she would definitely make sure they were included. And your 100%. mother wasn't ex- right. Th- she, go ahead, Melissa.
3: I I still have these big Thanksgivings just like she did, and you know, all the bring out all the dishes that that we used, and you know, it's very special and it's very meaningful to Cooper because he has such memories of that. And I guess it was a couple of years ago we had set the table and all that and he noticed that something wasn't there he was like "Where's you know whatever particular thing it was Mm. and I'm like oh I didn't put it out this year he's like no no like it's interesting to me what he's so connected to
1: yeah but it's persistence of memory I always say that If I have a holiday and I leave out a dish and the kids will say, where is it? And I'll say, I don't mean China, I mean a food thing. I'd say, well, no one likes it. And my son would say, it doesn't matter. It has to be here. And I understood that's their history, their grandparents, their security in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, So tell me. By the way, guys, I'm talking to Melissa Rivers, Lies My Mother Told Me, her brand new book. So what are you up to now? I'm sure that when the book came out and it's been you've been getting a lot of press that you've had a lot of interest in going a step further and doing something more with this. What are you thinking? Um,
3: I don't know yet. There's there's people are just, you know, just starting to get interested. It just came out uh April 12th, I believe, April 10th, it yeah. was actually, you know, dropped. So, you know, people are sniffing around. I have so many other projects going, you know, starting with my podcast and a couple of scripted projects. And it's, 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 it's very interesting to me that this is the book that people are like, oh, you know, this could be interesting. And you want to be like, you guys are just catching up.
1: That's, (laughs) well, you know, it sometimes takes a little time. And your mom always used to say that even though famous, successful, she was not part of Hollywood or part of any of those inner circles. And do you feel that way? You were a Hollywood kid.
3: 100%. I, I You know, everyone's always like, oh, you know, can, you know, when I was with the podcast, they're all like, well, you can get anybody you want. And I'm like, I don't know anybody. I, I was raised in such a non-Hollywood environment. And I continue, I've continued at my close, not, I have one close friend from college that is in the entertainment business. Right. And that's I have 10, one Right. Right. I have one that's a documentarian. And then outside of my that being my inner circle, I have other friends sort of in outer layers that are in the entertainment business, but I'm right. not hanging out with anyone that the paparazzi would care about. Right. It's and just not who world. I am and it's not who my life, you know, right. my life is much more. And, and But also that's how I was raised.
1: Mm-hmm. And Cooper, too, he's not a Hollywood oh, it, kid,
3: no, and again, he went to school with some kids you know who had famous parents or famous grandparents. Mm. But I also think it's how how you differentiate, and you know, I had a, such a traditional childhood where we sat down to dinner every night and and you know, to the day my mom died, her friend my friend called her Mrs. Rosenberg
1: mm. so which is so and that's interesting, sort of the way. Right?
3: so interesting. And that's how Cooper was raised.
1: Well, you're doing a great job. And as I said to you in the beginning, your mom would really love this book. It would give her a lot of laughs and a lot of pleasure. So thank you. All the best to you, Melissa. I look forward to talking to you again and following your interesting life and career path. Take care of yourself.
3: Thank you. Joan, you know how much we love you.
1: I thank you, Melissa. Lies, my and mother told me. I'm glad
3: that you understood how funny the book is.
1: Yeah, but it's funny. But you meant yeah, it to people, be funny.
3: Yeah, but people keep asking me, which is crazy, did she really say and do these things?
1: And you're like, <laughs> no. She
3: wasn't psychotic. <laughs>
1: She was just funny.
3: She was just funny, and I got to channel that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was great. No, I'm telling you, they'd both be proud. All right, honey, take care. Thank you so much. Take care. We'll talk again. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC.
0: The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. Well, people are always asking me, what's
1: new? What can I do? I want to come to the city. I want to do something that's really fun and interesting. So let me tell you, purely by chance, I was wandering on the Upper East Side, and I remembered someone had said, there's a museum that's really beautiful in a townhouse at 15 East 84th Street, closed on Mondays, but they have a great show. Okay, tell me, what's it called? Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. Well, have you ever heard of that? I never heard of it. So I go over, and it was almost noon. Apparently, it's open from 11 to 6, and on Fridays, 11 to 8. And it's part of NYU, which who knew? Admission is free. And on Fridays, which is when I happen to be there, there are free guided tours at 6 o'clock. You don't need a reservation. So what is it, this study of the ancient world? It's an independent research center within NYU that cultivates comparative and connective investigations of the ancient old world from the Mediterranean to East Asia. And we walk in this lovely place, and there truly, it was a take-your-breath-away exhibit. Pompeii. Pompeii in color. The life of Roman paintings. Unfortunately, well, for me, fortunate, it was up and functioning and gorgeous. It's only going to be on view until May 29th. The colors... We're talking about things that go back before the first century. The colors are unbelievable. The yellows, the red tones was a great show. And if you're listening, try to do it. It's not long, but it's like unexpected. And when you think about humans and what they do, and obviously Pompeii, you know, was destroyed. By the volcano, but in excavating, they found all these wonderful paintings. And apparently, there were a lot of very rich people in this Pompeii community, and they had wonderful art. And these were the things that they found buried in the remnants in the ruins. It was really beautiful. And it, pre- it presented 35 frescoes important works, all originally from Roman homes. Many of them were of dynamic mythological scenes, landscapes, still lifes, portraits. And it's an interesting way, not only to learn about ancient painting, but the taste and the values of the Romans who live with those works, plus the techniques used by the artists. We would never see this and almost never exhibited outside of Italy. They invite you to go beyond the ashes of Pompeii, this tragic city, and instead experience the vibrant world of the ancient Roman homes as the Pompeians themselves knew it. And you know what was also interesting? When the Romans came in and took over, they didn't destroy the works of the Greeks and other people, they they preserve them. And it was quite wonderful. So if you want to learn more about the show, go to their website and you can really pick up all kinds of information. And they have a digital component. So if you can't get in, you can see it all. The next major show here isn't going to be Until the fall. And by the way, if you do go, they have very strict COVID. So a lot of people in the city are not wearing masks anymore, but they require masks when you go into this show. So check it out. I know you're going to enjoy it the way I did and be amazed. I was. I mean, I was going to try to go back and see it. So I saw, small I, S-A-W, www.nyu.edu. Dot dot and this is the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. And it, I mean, human beings are extraordinary. All right, guys, I'm looking at the clock It's three o'clock. We do this every Sunday, starting at two. So I look forward to your joining me next week, too. And finish up this Sunday by celebrating life and love and adventure We'll do it again. I'm Joan Hamer.